Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.scbts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Revelation chapter 19, Revelation 19, and once more I found a crucial text that relates to our doctrine tonight that for some reason was not included in the scripture references of Article 10 on last things or the doctrine of eschatology. And the fact of the matter is, to be fair to those who brought the text together, uh, this is a massive, massive uh, category of theology that uh, could be tripled or quadrupled in terms of the number of references that you would find. Uh, I do think it interesting to note that only two references are from the Old Testament. And there are a couple that I would have thought would have been included. And one is Revelation 19, verse 11 through verse 21. And so we'll read that in preparation for our study tonight of the Doctrine of Last Things, Article 10. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the horse of victory and purity. And he who sat on him had these names, faithful and true. For it is in righteousness, unlike any other uh, rider on a white horse who comes to make war, it is in righteousness that he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. He is omniscient. He sees everything. And on his head were many crowns, the crowns of a king. And verse 16 explains why he's king of kings and lord of lords. And he also has a name written that no one knew except himself. No one can exhaust the incomparable rider on this horse. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. I believe the shed blood that was uh, spilt at Calvary, though some believe it is the blood of his enemies, and that argument can be made quite well. So he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, picking up on John 1.1. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. As we're going to see tonight, some texts speak of the angels coming back. When Jesus returns again, others speak of the saints coming with him. I believe here it is the saints who are in view. Now, out of his mouth, verse 15, goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, and gather together for the supper of the great God. This, by the way, contrasts very strikingly with chapter 19, verse 9, where believers are called to what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, this has been called by some theologians the bird feast. Uh, you want to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You don't want to be at the bird feast because you are the main uh, attraction and you are the main uh, 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 food that night, the main dish. So he says there that he called them together for the supper of the great God. Verse 18, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Verse 19, and I saw the beast, the Antichrist. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast, the Antichrist, was captured, 
and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive. Don't miss that. Into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. I suspect that Article 10 is a giant disappointment for many people who have a fascination with eschatology because it is striking in what it says and perhaps even more striking in what it does not say. And so let's read it together and then we'll note the references that are most pertinent. God in his own time and in his own way, so he is sovereign over when things are going to come to an end, will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return, two key words here, personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. So you use here what we call general judgment language. No specifics, no details, just general uh, theological language. The unrighteous then will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. And the righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. Now, because eschatology is such a multifaceted doctrine, it has both personal aspects and cosmic aspects. It has both temporal aspects and eternal aspects. There is a mammoth amount of Scripture that deals with different aspects and different facets of eschatology. So that you can see tonight in your notes on page 1, on page 2, on page 3, and on page 4, I have that many pages of notes that quote Scripture with respect to some aspect of the doctrine of eschatology. And so what I'm going to do is walk us through these quickly and make a comment along the way. If you won't take a pen and out to the side, I'll try to kind of hit upon the main thrust of what part of eschatology these verses are noting. Uh, I mentioned a moment ago only Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11 are cited from the Old Testament, which is surprising to me. I cannot believe, for example, that Daniel 7, 13 and 14 was not included, but both Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11 look toward uh, a kingdom when the Messiah will come and war will be to an end and the, the earth will flourish and prosper and be uh, basically rivers of righteousness will run everywhere. But then coming to the New Testament, Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. So he's coming in glory. The angels are coming with him. And then he will reward each according to his works. That is a reference to the second coming of Christ to the earth. Matthew 18, 8 and 9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. So here he speaks of eternal judgment and eternal torment. Later he will use the word hell, as you'll see in just a moment. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than have two eyes be cast into Gehenna fire, hell fire. You've probably heard all of your life that Jesus spoke of hell more than anyone else. That is true. 
The word Gehenna, translated hell in the English Bible, occurs 12 times in the Bible, 11 times on the lips of Jesus. The only time it doesn't is in James chapter 3, where James says the tongue. It is such an evil, poisonous, uh, depraved thing. It is set on fire by hell itself. That is the only place in the Bible that the word Gehenna, translated hell, occurs other than on the words or in the mouth of Jesus. Matthew 24, 29 through 31, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the coming great tribulation. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, uh, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There will be cataclysmic, cosmic upheaval. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. That is clearly a reference to the second coming of Christ. Matthew 24, 36 and 44. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, Jesus is making it clear that in his incarnate state, where he limited himself in certain ways during the incarnate state, he was not aware of the time that God would bring history to its climactic end. I always tell my students at seminary, he knows now. Because having been exalted to the right hand of God the Father, he is again fully exercising his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. But during the incarnate state, he did not surrender those divine attributes, but for a time he willingly laid them aside and did not exercise them. Hence, he could say, I don't know when that day is going to be. So, as a result of that, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Matthew twenty six sixty four. in speaking to Pilate, Jesus said to him, It is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Another reference to the second coming. And by the way, out to the side, you could write, see Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, because he is clearly picking up on apocalyptic Son of Man language from the book of Daniel. Mark 8, 38, uh, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Again, a reference to the second coming. Mark 9 is very similar, not identical, but very similar to what we read a moment ago in Matthew chapter 18 about hell being a place of fire and torment. Uh, Luke 12:40. Therefore, also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, Luke 20, 34 through 48. 38, excuse me. Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age, that is the age to come, the age of eternal blessing, the age when we enter into forever the presence of God, those who are worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to, they're like the angels, and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection." 
I simply added that in because, to my great disappointment, that text seems to indicate uh, that you're not going to be married in heaven. Now, it doesn't say you can't have a roommate, and so I've already put in a request into heaven for Charlotte to be my roommate uh, for all of eternity, and so I'm hoping that that prayer will be answered and that I will be allowed that roommate, but the text basically says that in the eternal state, uh, marriage doesn't take place. Now, my conviction is that uh, as good as it is down here, it has to be better up there. So you won't be disappointed about that being the case, but he does make the argument that we will be like the angels as sons of the resurrection in God's presence, in heaven's presence, but also not given in marriage. And so he goes on and explains why that is the case. John 14, 1 through 3, one of the most loved, beloved passages in all the Bible. Let, your hearts not, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Actually, a better translation would be dwelling place. Now, since it's in heaven, it's going to be a nice place. But the word mansion gives us the idea of some big, sprawling, elaborate uh, location for us to plant ourselves for all of eternity. It may be like that. It may not. All he is saying is, I am going to prepare a place for you that will be a wonderful dwelling in heaven. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And so I go to prepare a place for you. Now, this is for free. Most people read that and they say, well, my goodness, how long is it taking Jesus to prepare the place for us? I mean, he is God. He could just do it like that. I believe with Don Carson that when you have the phrase, I go to prepare a place for you, he's not talking about heaven at that moment. He's talking about the cross. There's a place he prepares for you and me to have access and entrance into heaven. And so we're asking the wrong question. We say, well, just how long does it take him? It takes him no time at all. As we're going to see in just a moment, the delay in his coming has to do not with his inability to build you a mansion or a dwelling place. Uh, his delay in coming is that more souls might be saved and brought into the kingdom of God. That's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. All right. Acts 111. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. They saw him go into heaven personally. They saw him go into heaven visibly. He will return in the same way. So again, second coming language there. Preparation for heaven language in John 14. Now a new thought that comes onto the eschatological radar screen. Romans 14:10. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You ought to mark that phrase, the judgment seat of Christ. It appears in the very next verse that we look at as well, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, very quickly as an aside. Some persons, like myself, believe that the judgment seat of Christ is different than the great white throne judgment. Others believe they are synonymous and talking about the same thing, but just using different terminology. And in fact, if you go back to our article, it does not specify with respect to the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment. I believe, because of the context of both of those references, that the judgment seat of Christ is for believers where we are judged, not for our salvation. That was settled at the cross. 
But we are judged on the basis of our faithfulness in service to Jesus, both in terms of action, attitude, and intent of the heart. I think that's what the judgment seat of Christ is. I believe the great white throne is a judgment for unbelievers. And they are judged on the basis of the fact that, one, their name is not in the book of life. And number two, that they therefore stand before God and are judged on the basis of their works, not upon the righteousness of Christ that you and I received when we trusted him by faith. And so I think the two judgments are distinct. But uh, Al Mohler, one of my dearest friends, would differ, disagree with me. And he believes that these, these judgments are synonymous. And he's just simply saying, everybody's going to be judged. Everybody's going to be judged. Now, some of us will be judged, and because we're in Christ, our judgment is a good one. Others of us will be judged, and because our name is not in the book of life, we haven't trusted Christ, it'll be a bad one. But basically, we should speak more in terms of just a general judgment, not one judgment for believers and another judgment for unbelievers. Another reason I believe that, and I won't get ahead of myself, is what you read when you get to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15, and we will get there in just a moment, all right? Uh, for time's sake, let me drop down to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and out beside it, uh, write the words, rapture, rapture. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, died in the Lord, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede, go ahead of those who are asleep, those who, are di who have died and their bodies are in the grave. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? On the earth? No, in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I think Titus 2.13, dropping down, should have beside it the word rapture. Looking then for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then if you'll turn to the next page, and again, trying to uh, honor our time, I'll simply read 1 John 3.2. And then Revelation 20, 11 through 15, and we'll jump into our commentary on the article. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And beside that verse, you ought to write the word glorification, because that verse speaks of the fact that someday we will have perfect humanity, just like Jesus had perfect humanity. When we see him, we will be like him. And then beside Revelation 20, 11 through 15, you could write the great white throne judgment. And here's why I believe it's only for unbelievers. In fact, I'll say it to you this way. Find me any evidence, any comment at all about believers in these verses, and the uh, response will be, you can't. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great. Now, if you go back earlier at the end of 19 uh, and the first part of 20, the dead there are referring to not just the physically dead, but the spiritually dead. 
So he's picking up the same language again. So I saw the dead, small and great. Remember, small and great got ate by the birds back there in chapter 19. They're standing before God and books were opened. And another book singular was opened, which is the book of life and the dead. Not the living and the dead, the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast alive, uh, or were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And therefore, I believe what you have in view here is the judgment of unbelievers. I do need to go back up for one moment. Second Peter 3, verses 7 through 13. We won't do the whole thing, but I'll get you to a verse where I want to make a quick comment. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, that is the word of the Lord, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, here's what I want you to see. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that verse, by the way, is in the context of the Lord coming again and the Lord judging the earth. And so Second Peter makes it clear any delay of our Lord's coming again is not because he is somehow busy or somehow he is limited or unable. His delay is for the souls of humanity, the souls of lost person, giving time, showing grace and mercy that they might have the opportunity, one, to hear the gospel, and two, to believe the gospel. So we keep that in mind as we try to put all of this together. So with that then, as a lot of scripture reading, noting a lot of different aspects of eschatology that are touched upon, let's jump into the commentary. When one reads Article 10 on last things, one immediately is struck by what is not there. The BFNM does not mention the day of the Lord. Daniel's 70th week. The rapture, the tribulation, the antichrist, false prophet, or the millennium. None of those things are mentioned. Further, the BFNM does not discuss the number of comings of Christ, the number of resurrections, nor the number of judgments. All areas of disagreement among Bible-believing Christians. Indeed, if you look at the next paragraph throughout our history... Baptists have affirmed a wide range of belief systems about the last things. George W. Truett, the great pastor of First Dallas from 1897 to 1944, and B.H. Carroll, the founding president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, both espoused what is called post-millennialism. That is, that Christ would come back to this earth after a golden era through the preaching of the gospel, whereby we have Christianized the entire world. Uh, that view is making a little bit of a comeback, but it's pretty difficult to buy into given the way our world looks today. First, uh, furthermore, I don't think it can be uh, adequately uh, exegeted and expounded from Scripture. Pastor theologian Herschel Hobbes affirmed amillennialism. That is, that the millennium is a spiritual event taking place either now in heaven or in the hearts of individual believers. This view was popular in our Southern Baptist seminaries for many decades. 
But popular pastor W.A. Criswell taught the pre-tribulational, the church will be raptured out before the tribulation, premillennialism, Christ will come back to this earth before a thousand-year reign on the earth. And this view is also held by Billy Graham, John MacArthur, David Jeremiah, Charles Ryrie, Adrian Rogers, and myself. But James Merritt, former president of the convention, John Piper, Al Mohler, are representative of those who hold to a post-tribulational pre-millennialism. That is, we will go through the tribulation. Christ then will come and establish his kingdom upon the earth. Now, here's what I like about the Baptist faith and message. Um, if they were alive today, I would be happy to have any of those men in that paragraph teach at Southeastern Seminary. That, that would be just fine with me. You say, you'd have no problem having George Truitt? No. B.H. Carroll? No. Herschel Hobbs? No. The others? Maybe not Dr. Merritt. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'd, ha I'd have Dr. Merritt too. But no, I'd be happy to have all of them teach on my faculty because all of these persons in that paragraph are in absolute agreement with everything that's in the Baptist Faith and Message, Article 10. We all believe that Jesus is coming again, literally, visibly, personally, historically. We all believe there is an eternal heaven and an eternal hell, and that your relationship with Jesus makes the only difference. We're all in agreement on that which is not negotiable, not up for debate. In fact, I make clear my view of the rapture, but I again often say to my students, I will fight you over the truth of the rapture. I will not fight you over the time of the rapture. You can be like me, pre-tribulational, like Dr. Moeller and Piper and Merritt, post-tribulational. You can be mid-tribulational, pre-wrath rapture, partial rapture. doesn't matter to me as long as you do believe there's going to be a time when Christ appears in the sky, believers are caught up to be with him, and then he comes back and has the eternal judgment whereby people either are consigned to heaven or hell. That's what's not uh, negotiable. That's what is not up for debate. So we just need to understand there's a lot of variety. And I've included for you uh, over on page 8 at the end a chart that kind of lays out for you, at least in the context of the millennium, uh, what the premillennial view is, what the amillennial view is, what the postmillennial view is, and the particular persons who would identify themselves with one of those three positions. And you can look at that uh, on your own at your leisure. But that, again, will just kind of give you the playing field uh, that is out there. And again, where I think the lines ought to be drawn and where I think there need to, needs to be room for us to graciously uh, and lovingly uh, disagree. But you'll sometimes find people, just like they will over spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, uh, just like they will over the age of the earth and your view of creation in terms of old earth versus new earth. Sometimes when it comes to eschatology, you'll have people that will want to spill your blood and maybe even theirs and fight you tooth and nail over the intricate details of eschatology. And personally, I've always thought that was a little foolish. At the 53-year mark of my life, I think it's extremely foolish. And so I'm not going to waste my time fighting you over uh, details where very good, godly, biblical scholars and teachers of the Bible disagree. I'm not going to do that. So, next paragraph. The BF&M highlights, then, the irreducible minimum 
of orthodox beliefs about last things. That's a great statement. That's what they intended. It highlights the irreducible minimum. In other words, you may believe more than Article 10 talks about. I certainly do. But you can't believe less than what Article 10 talks about. Are you moving to the area of false teaching and potentially even heresy? So again, it highlights the irreducible minimum of orthodox beliefs about last things, such as the personal return of Christ, the resurrection of believers and unbelievers, judgment of all individuals, and eternal destinies of hell and heaven. Those things are not up for debate, all right? What then are the keynotes about last things according to the Baptist faith and message? Well, I hit five of them. Number one, it accentuates the purposeful meaning of history. History is not cyclical. A pagan understanding of history expressed in some forms of Greek philosophy and certainly in your Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism. Neither is history evolutionary, progressing upward to a higher status. No, the Bible affirms that God who created historic time also directs history toward a purposeful conclusion. God then according to his plan and timing will consummate cosmic history. Two. The BFNM highlights the personal return of Christ as the central core of last things teachings. And I think that is rightly emphasized. Christ will return personally. Christ will return visibly. A teaching that rules out the multiple secret comings of some sect groups. Think, for example, of the Jehovah's Witnesses who missed it the first time, but then came back and said, oh, well, actually came the first time secretly. So they said another date. He didn't make that one either. Well, that was a second, second secret coming. And actually, they've got three or four secret comings in their uh, system of eschatology. No, the Bible makes it clear he's coming one more time visibly and gloriously for all people to see. Christ then will return gloriously, not in the manner of a humble birth, but in the triumph of a glorious king. He will manifest his unveiled deity when he returns. Christ's return then is a revelation, another term underscoring his deity. Third, the BFNM affirms the bodily resurrection of all persons. Christ will raise both believers and unbelievers. The Bible does not describe in any detail the nature of resurrected unbelievers. But Paul does describe or detail four qualities of the resurrected body of believers, although, again, he doesn't tell you a whole lot. You say, Danny, what kind of body does Paul say I'm going to have? Incorruptible, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. You say, well, what else does he say? Nothing. So he gives you broad categories that are certainly positive ideas, incorruptible, glorious, powerful, spiritual but he doesn't really go into any of the details as to what that body will be like. I mean, here's a million-dollar question. Babies that die, I believe that they are the object of God's mercy and saving grace. Well, will they be babies for all of eternity? If I were to die uh, tonight, will I have in heaven some type of glorified 53-year-old body, whatever that would, would look like? You say, well, how do you even talk in those kind of categories when you're speaking of eternity? I don't know. I've never been there. Neither have you. And so I don't know how all of that is going to work itself out when we are in eternity. My, my suspicion, and this is speculative, is that the, the seed of who you are on the inside will reach its full flowering and fruition in heaven. 
whatever that is going to look like. And if that's true, then uh, the same seed that flowers and is glorified in a baby will also flower and glorify in someone who died at the age of 100. And the age issue will not even be on the table. It, again, is an interesting question. Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't even speak to it in any form or fashion. I know this. People sometimes say, well, little babies that die go to heaven become angels. The Bible says nothing like that. Uh, angels were created by God. He created a specific number based upon the scriptures. A third of them fell and followed the devil when he uh, rebelled against the authority of God. There's nothing that indicates he's made any more. There's nothing that indicates he's put any of them out of existence. And there's nothing that indicates anyone ever translates from being a human to an angel. That may be wistful thinking, but it's certainly <clears throat> not grounded uh, in biblical truth. All right. Fourth. The BFNM acknowledges the returned Christ as judge of all. In contrast to some human courts, this divine judge operates on the principle of righteousness or justice. We saw that very clear in Revelation 19 a moment ago. That's one of his names. The judgment declares our final states. The judgment reveals the basis of God's righteous judgment. And Christ judges each person according to his or her deeds. 2 Corinthians 5.10, I believe the deeds of a believer done after their conversion. Revelation 20.11 through 15, the deeds of their total life because they do not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Thus the judgment reveals the unrighteous deeds of unbelievers and the rewards granted to believers. Let me make a quick comment here. Are there degrees of punishment in hell? Yes. Are there degrees of reward in heaven? Yes. Revelation brings responsibility. The more you know, the greater is your accountability. So hell will not be, to use the imagery of Scripture, will not be equally hot for everybody. It will be more, uh, there will be greater torment for some than others. Likewise, there will be some people in heaven that will experience greater rewards than do others. You say, well, that's problematic because that then means that some people in heaven will be envious and jealous of other people. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said, no, no, no. Uh, every vessel will be perfectly filled to its capacity. It just is the case that some vessels will have a greater capacity than others. But in other words, you will be filled to the brim with all that you can can stand. So will everybody else. And so since you are filled to the brim, you will not be thirsty or hungry or wanting more. And yet the scriptures are clear. Some people will be rewarded for their faithfulness to a greater degree than others. And my strong suspicion is we're going to be very, 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 very surprised when we discover who indeed have been the most faithful servants to King Jesus in this life. Fifth. The BFNM briefly details, briefly details eternal destinies. God assigns the unrighteous to hell, a place of eternal punishment. Thus, you ought to mark this. The BFNM rules out annihilationism, a denial of the eternal nature of hell. Annihilationists, those who affirm what is called conditional immortality, believe that those who die apart from Christ simply cease to exist. They are annihilated. They, they, they do not exist in any form or fashion. They just go into non-existence. Now, in my sentimentalism, I would like to believe that. I would. I would like to think that people who die and go to hell are not tormented forever 
and ever and ever and ever. I, 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 I find something attractive about that idea. The problem is I can find not one scripture that would support it. Not one. The Bible makes it pretty clear that just as eternal life lasts forever for the believer, uh, unrighteous life for the non-believer likewise lasts forever. And so it rules out annihilationism. Thus, eternal hell is the ultimate in what we could say is wastefulness, loneliness. You know, people sometimes say, well, I want to go to hell and hang out with all my friends. You won't have any friends in hell. You'll be completely alone. Nobody's to go partying with. There'll be no partying in hell. It is a place of wastefulness, loneliness, hopelessness, and sinfulness. In contrast, biblical teachings describe heaven as a beautiful temple, like a cube, a glorious garden, and a wonderful, vibrant city or community. Heaven is said to be a place of rest, reward, and service to God. W.T. Connor, the theologian at Southwestern, said, Heaven is no lazy man's paradise. No, the greatest joy of heaven is dwelling forever with the Lord and serving the Lord. Now, let's look at one aspect of the new statement that probably uh, would have been well served to be adjusted back, not to 1963, but to 1925. At times, believers manifest an unbiblical emphasis in relation to last things. We focus on end-time speculations and predictions. The New Testament, though, emphasizes the teachings about last things as a doctrine of comfort and a call to holiness for believers. And that's the phrase you ought to underline, a call to holiness for believers. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 and the 1963 version lack. It's not there. For some reason, they took it out in 1963. They lacked this vital call to practical holiness. However, the BFNM 1925 beautifully expressed the practical benefit of the teachings about last things in the article, The Return of the Lord. It reads, quote, It is the duty of all believers to live in readiness for His coming by diligence in good works, to make manifest to all men the reality and power of their hope in Christ. In other words, there's something about the holy, transformed life that gives people a little picture of what heaven is going to be like, and therefore God uses it to attract them and draw them to the Christ who's made us new and transformed us. And so I, I wish that had been put back into the 2000 statement. But let's move to close. People naturally have an intense interest in the future. Psychic hotlines have become big business as hurting people seek a glimpse of potential hope in the coming in their coming destiny. Evangelical Christianity is not immune to this desire to know the future. Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, made him one of the 1970s most popular authors, selling millions and millions and millions. Today, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye's fictional series, Left Behind, has sold tens of millions. And again, if we're not careful, uh, we'll get our eschatology from the late great planet Earth and Left Behind rather than the Bible. And I would remind you that both LaHaye and Jenkins make it clear what we are writing is a fiction. All right? So keep that in mind when you read a book like that. But a feeling, a feeling also pervades many evangelicals. 
that we indeed are the terminal generation. In fact, I saw a survey a few years ago. I think I'm right here. Twenty seven percent of all self-professing evangelicals believe Jesus is going to come again in their lifetime. That, by the way, is somewhere around uh, 20 million people. Maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's 40 million people. It's a bunch. I think 20 is more likely the, the accurate number. But, folks, um, be careful there. Because for 2,000 years, there have been people saying that Jesus was coming in their lifetime. And they all have one thing, gloriously, no, ingloriously, in common. They were all wrong. Every single one of them. You say, all right, Danny, you think he could come back in your lifetime? Oh, I think he could. Do you think he will? I don't know. I have no idea. I'm not a date setter. I'm not an antichrist namer or a false prophet namer. Uh, he could come in my lifetime, and he may not come back again for a thousand years. Jesus says nobody knows the time. So why would you ask me a question like that? I don't know, and neither do you. And if you give money to someone who says they do, you're an idiot. Why don't you give your money to Southeastern Seminary, which will actually do something worthwhile with your money, or give it to White Crossroads Baptist Church, will do something worthwhile with your money. Don't give it to some nutcase who's telling you he or she knows when Jesus is coming again, because Jesus says nobody knows, so you can be sure of one thing, it ain't going to happen when they say it's going to happen, because nobody knows. So, just stay away from that kind of thing, thankfully. Praise God, the 2000 BFNM Statement of Last Things is a judiciously written statement that provides insight into some of the most significant events in the future and at the same time can be embraced by believers from various eschatological perspectives. It is balanced. It is careful. Something always needed in discussions of eschatology. Thus, we believe that Jesus Christ will return because he promised that he would. At the time of his return, every sacrifice we may have made for his kingdom will melt into insignificance as we enter into eternity with our Savior. Every longing that we as believers have had to see our Lord's face will be realized. Thus, when we see him, we shall be like him, 1 John 3, 2. And we will fall on our faces to worship the one who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood, Revelation 1, 5. At that time, arguments over eschatological details will be irrelevant. As we cry out to him, be glory and power forever and ever. Revelation 1.6. Thus, as John wrote in Revelation 22.20, so should we say, even so today, come, Lord Jesus. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.